have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. I need an intern or Dan, could somebody get me something to wipe my glasses? I cried on them earlier. I cry a lot if you're a guest with us. Uh, something that I could clear them up a little bit. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. Thank you, Dan. If you do not have a Bible, you should be able to find the book of Ecclesiastes on page 553 of a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we would love for you to, to take that one home with you. One of the things that we love to do, this feels really odd for me cleaning my glasses in front of you. Uh, one of the things that we love is that when our Bibles start disappearing in the church, we don't see that as theft, we as something that uh, is good news for us. We'd be happy for you to take a copy so that you could read God's Word and understand who Jesus Christ is and continue to, to learn about the Savior much better. Now I can see. Uh, before we begin, and as we begin, I'd like to, to actually answer two questions about the last two sermons first. Uh, one of our members emailed me this past week uh, and said, I'm a little confused on whether or not the author is Solomon. In the first sermon, it seemed like you were casting doubt on the idea. Now it seems like you're basically assuming it. First, I want to say emails like this help me a lot. You are always welcome to email me with questions or comments or concerns. But now to this particular question. A minority of scholars think that Solomon actually wrote the book. A majority of scholars think that Solomon did not write the book, that the style and the vocabulary suggest another author from a much later date. Either way, whether it was Solomon or somebody else, the book is written from the perspective of Solomon, whether that's literal or symbolic. So we need to evaluate all of the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes in light of Solomon's life as it is revealed to us in Scripture, which is one of the reasons during our Scripture readings on Sunday mornings right now, we're reading a lot about Solomon's life, and I'll even read some of his life this morning during the sermon for you. We need to learn about his life, and part of the reason that I drew attention to that is so that we might be able to try to interpret what it is that the preacher is saying to us. And that's probably what you notice, that because we have to call the author something, I've decided to call him the preacher. Second, one of our members emailed me this week and noted that it wasn't clear why I had preached outside of the designated text for the first two sermons. For example... When I was preaching in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, I made reference to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, our text today, and to chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, the end of the book. And in the second sermon, while I was preaching 1, 12 through 18, I made reference and took us to chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. In the first sermon, that was because I was introducing a book, which I assume most of us were not very familiar with, so I spent some time trying to piece together the broader theme of Ecclesiastes and lifting out a few passages so that we might be able to understand it. In the second sermon last week, I connected 1, chapter, uh, 1 12 through 18 with chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, because both 1, 12 through 18 and 2, 12 through 17 are about wisdom and wisdom and madness and folly. Thematically, it made complete sense because what we're going to see as we move through wisdom literature is that so many of the themes just keep reoccurring. Wisdom literature is not like normal narrative in the Bible where it's just very linear and goes from beginning to end. Wisdom literature is very circular. Sometimes some of the same themes keep coming up. So if you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, you see that. It's just over and over some of the same themes throughout the entirety of the book. It made sense to link the two passages 
because they both focused on the first of the ways the preacher is seeking to tap meaning out of life after asking this question in chapter 1, verse 3. What does a man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer that 1, 4 through 11 gives to that question in verse 3 is nothing. There is no gain. There is no profit. There is nothing from all of our toil under the sun. There is nothing to show for all of the labor in this life. And to prove that point, the preacher goes on a quest after 1, 4 through 11, in chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 2 and verse 26. He's going on a quest to try to demonstrate the validity of that claim that there is no meaning, that there is no value, that all is vanity, that there is no profit, that there is no gain. And the first way that he demonstrates gainless toil is by teaching us about wisdom. That is the life of the mind. And then teaching us about wisdom and madness and folly. That is morality versus immorality. And his conclusion is chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, which says there is no gain for the life of the mind. There is no gain for morality or uh, in contrast to immorality because we're all going to die. So he says in chapter 2, verse 15, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then I have been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. He actually takes us to the end of life to show us how to live life. From the perspective that everything is going to end, he starts to look back on life and show us gainless toil and the proper way to live this side of eternity under the sun, under heaven, on the earth. But the question now is, is that it for wisdom? Are there other things, other ways that we might gain? What about pleasure? Surely, pleasure will give meaning to life, right? especially if we are able to indulge in as much pleasure as we want, as frequently as we want, wherever we want, without any restraint at all. Right? To answer that question, we turn to our text today. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which 
to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word now. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And Father, we pray that we would believe what we just sung, that we would stand on the teaching of your word, on the teaching of these promises today. Lord, in what many would think is a very depressing book, a book that has no connection to the Christian life. We pray that you would reveal to us the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to see, to believe, to understand that we might grow in conformity with Christ. And for any of us who are present who have not yet trusted in Christ, may we hear in these words eternal life, the hope of the gospel, and be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the Christ of God. Amen. On June 14, 1934, at the tender age of 25, Max Baer defeated Primo Carnera to become the boxing heavyweight champion of the world. In the world of ESPN, now dominated by professional football and college sports, that really doesn't mean much to any of us today because boxing as a whole has lost its appeal. But in the 1930s, boxing was the elite sport of the world. And even when people didn't have two pennies to call their own to pay rent during the Great Depression, they somehow found money to watch boxing, particularly fighters like Max Baer. At 6'2 and a half, 210 pounds, with a waist as slim as a bride's and shoulders as broad as a doorframe, Max Baer was built to box. In 84 career fights, he won 53 of them by knockout. And is still remembered in the boxing world, by the crushing force of his right hand. But Max was an unusual person. He was far more than a boxer. He was a showman. He starred in almost 20 movies, the most popular being The Prize Fighter and The Lady, filming commercials for nearly every product you can imagine, and appearing frequently in slapstick comedy shows, even going on tour with a friend. And he was a ladies' man. He was married twice, but he was legendary for his extensive extramarital escapades that were sought both by him and by women. In the summer of 1934, Joan Brewster, Bear's personal secretary, was inundated with thousands of personal letters from lovesick women all over the world seeking his affection. So many, she said, quote, 
If Max Baer tried to keep all of the appointments women desired to make with him since he became the champion, the days would have to be at least 50 hours long, and even then he would have to dispense with eating, sleeping, and the business of making a living. And he was rich. Even during the Great Depression, he grossed hundreds of thousands of dollars per fight, wore expensive tailor-made suits, ate fine cuisine, frequented the world's most expensive hotels, and traveled the globe. He was famous. By mid-December 1934, Max Baer was thoroughly convinced that he was the best boxer in the world. He had defeated every contender that had lined up before him, and it is exactly what everybody had been telling him for the last several months. He's the greatest. But like Alexander the Great, who at Baer's age realized that there were no worlds left to conquer, Bear sighed with boredom. Nothing seemed to satisfy. Nothing seemed to matter. And he no longer cared to defend that which he had already won. The taste of self-centered pleasure had grown his self-indulgent appetite beyond satisfaction when nothing mattered. The Solomon of Ecclesiastes had the same problem. After trying to think his way to an answer, his pursuit ended in exasperation and despair. Look in chapter 1, verse 18. For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So we'll see today, he became what one preacher called an experimental hedonist. To try to make his own personal happiness, his main purpose in life, with the hope that there would be gain for all of his toils under the sun. Notice first, the quest. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. As the, after wisdom failed him, the preacher started talking to himself again. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart. The very same phrase that we saw in chapter 1, verse 16. If you just look up there, you'll see, I said in my heart. And what did he say to himself? This time it wasn't about the life of the mind or morality versus immorality. This time he discussed how to get gratification out of life. Since wisdom had led to sorrow, he now, verse 1, set his heart to test it. He wanted to test it with pleasure. Maybe that's where some of you are today. You are looking for relief from the insubstantial meaning of your life in pleasure. Well, if that's where you are today, the preacher knows exactly where you are. He's been there himself. But more importantly, friends, God knows where you are. And he's written down about it in his word. And he's recorded it here for you to understand. The word test implies that what follows, particularly verses 2 through 8, is an experiment. A deliberate attempt by the preacher to learn something from personal experience, and the passage is dominated by individual personal experience, even when we consider that he's writing autobiographically. If you're reading carefully, then you probably noticed in the ESV that the pronoun I occurs 18 times in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And the word pleasure shows that what he wants out of this test Satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment, gratification, happiness. Isn't that what everybody wants? Everybody wants, I can get one amen, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants happiness in their life. 
In the opening verses of chapter 2, the preacher tries a new approach. Now it's time, verse 1, to enjoy himself. But almost immediately, verse 1, the preacher tells us that this new quest failed just as miserably and spectacularly as the first one. Pleasure did not satisfy the soul any more than wisdom did. Behold, he says, verse 1, this also was vanity. Although pleasure seemed to hold out that carrot stick, that there is hope of gain, that there is hope of profit, that there is hope of meaning, that there is hope of purpose. It certainly felt better than vexation. It was certainly far more enjoyable than sorrow. Pleasure vanished in the mist. The preacher says for all of his toils, there was nothing to show for it. Have you ever found that to be true in your own life? That what you sought after didn't satisfy. What you thought, if I have that, I will finally be happy. If only I could, and then finally I'll be content. What you've pined for and prayed for and perhaps have never shared with other people that you long desire, in the end, when you got it, didn't bring you happiness after all. The preacher knew what that was like too. But lest we think that the preacher failed to give pleasure a fair chance. Maybe maybe he didn't go far enough. In verses 2 through 8, he lists all of the pleasures that he tried. Just follow along with me. Look in verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure... What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. These verses and the verses that follow them are the stuff of secret dreams, fame, fortune, the finer things of life with absolutely no restraint. But did you notice how he began his list? He experimented first with comedy. Now, I thought about that all week. Why comedy? Because to enjoy humor, you actually have to get the joke. You have to get the joke as if you're making fun of the world or the circumstances as if you're outside of them, as if you're not a part of it, as if you're an interpreter and not a participant. Some people, perhaps some of us, deal with the insecurities of life by making everything a joke. When they're down on, themsel- uh, on themselves, they make fun of other people or make fun of themselves. When they're bored, they look for something to make them laugh. When they're stressed, all they want to do is giggle. All they're doing is numbing themselves against the pain of reality. So the preacher says, a set of laughter, it is mad. SNL, TikTok videos, and YouTube clips won't protect you from the sorrow of this life. Because you are a participant, not a distant interpreter, looking at life unbiased. And life, for any of us who have lived for any length of time, is hardly a laughing matter. So the preacher, verse 3, sought how to cheer his body with wine. But what do we make of his aside here in verse 3? My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. Was the preacher a drunk or a connoisseur? His approach is so contrary to the book of Proverbs where the abuse of wine is warned against that it seems that what the preacher is saying is ironic rather than an endorsement. 
Wisdom in Proverbs is not empirical, but observes the world from the vantage point of the fear of the Lord. That's constantly what the book of Proverbs is telling us, that wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But wisdom in Ecclesiastes, especially chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, deals with experience and reason. His consciousness, his eye that dominates the passage, is what is taking precedence over the fear of the Lord. He's at the center. He's operating at the very center of everything that's taking place. And the Bible tells us that this is not the wisdom that comes from above. That this is a lowly wisdom. That this is earthly wisdom. That there is a heavenly wisdom. He turned to drinking to find out that alcohol, was in hopes that alcohol was the best solution to the emptiness of life in the face of death. And what he found is that alcohol doesn't take away the pain. Perhaps you're there. You've learned the same lessons that the preacher did. Alcohol actually doesn't take away the pain of sin and sorrow. Friend, if that's you, if you're enslaved in that way, we want you to know that we're so glad that you're here. We would love to help you. I would love to talk to you after the service. If you're trying to drown your sorrows with alcohol, we would love to walk alongside you. Whether it's marked by sophistication as a connoisseur or inebriation as a drunk, The preacher was looking for pleasure from life and alcohol while he still had time, verse 3, during these few days of his life. Just the brevity of life, reminding us that we're living in the mist. And then all of a sudden, what seems to be an, an act of desperation, the preacher turns from frivolity to industry and licentiousness in verses 4 through 8. Look there. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me, which is one of those indicators, perhaps, that it's not Solomon because there was only two kings in Jerusalem before him. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and all the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. There are many pleasures in this life. And this man was rich enough to indulge in almost all of them. Surely the king who has enough time and enough resources and enough opportunity would be the one that if he indulged in all of the pleasures of this life, he would be the one who would find satisfaction and meaning and purpose, that it wouldn't be a striving after win, that it wouldn't be meaningless and purposeless. And who knows, perhaps, perhaps this is the way to go. Work, management, projects, getting things done, Could this be the way of happiness? Discipline, goals, finance, building, farming, music, leisure, sex. Is this the way of happiness? Is this the way of meaning? Is this the way of purpose? Only a great man could even attempt such a grand project. And the scope of his achievements is indicated in the text before us by the fact that the preacher mentions everything in the plural. Houses and vineyards, gardens and parks, pools and trees, herds and flocks, treasures and monies, singers and servants, and concubines that have no strings attached to sex. 
you had it all and lots of it to the max. It filled everything. There was nothing he lacked for. There was nothing that he wanted that was not at his disposal that he could not get his fingers on. Few people have ever experienced any of these pleasures on the scale mentioned here by this man who experienced all of these pleasures. And I wonder, after reading it, does that sound like the good life to you? Would you be willing to trade all of your days from the first day to this day for a life like that? For a year like that? For a month like that? For a week like that? For even a day like that? We say it all the time. If I were king for a day, I would... Fill in the blank. And answer honestly. And if the answer is yes, I would trade everything for that. Then you have not yet learned wisdom from Solomon, in whose life we see all of these things. If you have your worship bulletin, put it in Ecclesiastes, and I want you to turn over to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 7. And you're going to read with me in a few sections of 1 Kings chapter 7 about Solomon's life. 1 Kings chapter 7, look in verse 1, and then we'll just move forward in 1 Kings as we're reading. 1 Kings chapter, one verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Now, if you just look up the verse before that, he did not build the Lord's house for that long. He spent a lot more time on his own house. And he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars, with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows, and windows opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite windows in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the thrones where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from the floor to the rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the copying, and from outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones cut according to the measurement in cedar. The great court had three uh, courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. Now turn to chapter 10, verse 4 of 1 Kings. Same book, just flip over a few pages. Chapter 10, verse 4. And when the king of she- queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, now notice, she doesn't hear it, she sees it. The house that he had built, the food for his table, the seating of his officials, 
and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Now look in chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Beside that, which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. He has so much gold, he just sticks it in a house. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest of gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had, had a round top, and on each side were the, of the seat were armrests and two lions standing before the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one of e- on each step of the steps of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. He has so much gold, he drinks out of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come back bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in, and in his wisdom. So it's no longer in Jerusalem. All the kings of the world are jealous of him. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, with God, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from the, from Egypt in Kew, and the king's traders received from them Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now look in chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Solomon had everything. These, verse 4, great works were all a part of his private residence. His palace was paradise regained, a veritable man-made garden of Eden for him to live in. He has brought paradise to himself. He had as much wealth as any king could not only have, but could ever imagine, and most people like you could imagine a lot. Everything he wants, he immediately gets. 
It's hard not to envy him. And yet notice his assessment. The quest, notice second, the conclusion. And if you like to write in your Bible, just underline the word toil in verses 9 through 11. So I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Never has there been a king like this. I became great and surpassed all who were in Jerusalem before me, he says in verse 9. He is the greatest of the great, the upper 1% of the upper 1%, and as in verse 3, he notes that his wisdom stood with him as he, verse 10, indulged in all that life had to offer with absolutely no restraint. But notice how he describes his pursuit. Just look again in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Why does he describe the pursuit of pleasure as toil? Look back in chapter 1, verse 3, and just remind yourself of the question hanging over this section. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher reminds us in chapter 2, verse 10, that his experiment isn't merely hedonistic pursuit. He is not endorsing hedonism in verses 4 through 8 as if he wants you to go out and do the same and figure out for yourself, hey, it all bottoms out in the end. Don't do that. He's testing to see if there's any profit in this life. After wisdom and morality failed him, he turned to pleasure. And what did he learn after his examination? Look in verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. Just think of all of the energy, and all of the planning, and all of the money, and all of the organizing, and all of the days and nights, and weeks and months that went into everything that we read about. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What did the preacher say? Much like Max Bear after him, After the fullest life lived that we could ever imagine, he was bored. Nothing mattered because nothing ultimately satisfied the aches and the longings of his heart. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if that describes you. Nothing in this life satisfies the aches and the longings of your heart. You pine and you pine, you yearn and you yearn, you strive to achieve, you get and you buy, you obtain and you labor, and every time you have everything, it just seems like it is just falling through your fingertips like sand at the beach or water in the shower. It just does not satisfy at all. It never builds up to amount to anything at all. But perhaps you're tempted to think, Because of your pursuits, after reading about this king's pursuits, if I could live like that, it would be different for me. I would be the one to enjoy it. 
Who wouldn't enjoy a life like this? I would be happy with all my toil. No, you would not. Just think about it. We have as many opportunities as Solomon had to indulge in all of our desires. In fact, for many modern Americans, Solomon might be even one who would envy us. Generally speaking, we live in better homes. We have heating and air conditioner. You can go to Wegmans this afternoon or Carlino's here in town and taste some of the most exotic, exquisite foods from all over the world that he would never have had opportunity to taste. You can travel downtown to Philadelphia and listen to world-class musicians and watch Broadway performers. And as far as sex is concerned, you can download an endless parade of virtual partners, a concubine for your own imagination. Everything is offered to you. Nothing is unavailable to you. And yet we're not satisfied. We still want more. It's never good enough. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller highlights that when Alexis de Tocqueville toured the United States in the 1830s, he noticed the strange melancholy that haunted Americans in the midst of abundance. The French statesman wisely concluded this, the complete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. You can squeeze all of the pleasure that you want out of life. And there is nothing to be gained from living under the sun because God has put eternity in your hearts. You expect too much out of this life because you were meant for another world. As the psalmist says in Psalm 16 verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will only experience the fullness of joy when we are satisfied in God and in God alone. And this is exactly why the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, when we know the love of Christ and that His Spirit dwells in us, we will know fullness. The love of Christ was displayed on the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came into the world to live the life that people could never live. The world tells you that you're good, but the Bible tells you that you're bad. The world tells you that you can be whoever you want to be, and the Bible tells you exactly who you are. You are a sinner. He perfectly obeyed the law at every point where you have never obeyed in your life. And he died the death that you deserve to die as a substitute. Your life has only earned you one thing, the Bible tells us. God's wrath. 
The only thing that you have merited is God's judgment and punishment. Jesus was raised for our justification, the apostle tells us, so that we might be declared innocent and righteous before God. And apart from Jesus Christ, you are culpable and you are guilty and you are unrighteous and you will go to hell. So the question for all of us is, what must we do? The Bible says a very simple thing to experience joy and fullness and pleasure. It says, repent and believe. Repent of your sin as God. Ask God to forgive you of it and turn away from it. Don't just ask him to forgive you, but live in it. Brothers and sisters, if you've asked God to forgive you of your sin, but you are indulging in your sin as if it's not a big deal, perhaps you've never really asked God to forgive you at all. You ask God to forgive you of your sin and you turn away from it. Dramatically turn away and cut it off out of your life. And then you do something else just very simple. You believe in Jesus. It's a profound and frustrating message. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he is truly God and truly man. Believe that he is raised from the dead. Believe that he is the forgiver of sins. Believe that he will forgive you of your sins. Perhaps you're thinking, the way that I've lived, preacher, he might forgive somebody else of their sins. He would never forgive me of my sins. If people in here only knew this about me, they wouldn't even want me here. Perhaps that's true. Perhaps we wouldn't want you here if we knew that. But the reality is, is that Jesus Christ is glad that you're here, and he would for, will forgive you of all of your sins if you turn to him in faith. You cannot sin yourself out of the grace of God. And you cannot sin yourself too far for the grace of God to reach you. All you have to do is repent and believe. And brothers and sisters, you can do that right now here in the service of corporate worship. We never have what many people call an invitation where you come down and declare your allegiance to Jesus because we never think that you stop responding to the gospel. You can respond right now, right here. You can respond in the courtyard talking to somebody. You can respond catching somebody after the service. You can respond on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every day next week, and the following Sunday. You can respond to the grace of God. Come to him. He will never cast you out. The preacher of Ecclesiastes has a relentless message. It feels depressing, but brothers and sisters, it's not. It actually, the hard part of Ecclesiastes is balancing what seem to be the heavy and depressing parts with the uplifting and happy parts. He tells us wisdom is better than folly. It's better to live than die, but we're all going to die, so enjoy life while you live. He has a relentless message. You don't have to wait long for the book of Ecclesiastes to tell you what it is. Just look in the second uh, verse of the uh, first chapter. But the message is this. All of our efforts to find happiness apart from God are useless. This life apart from God is meaningless, hopeless, and is only filled with despair. And that is a very important message because from the very beginning chapters of this book, we are being called back to think of the very beginning chapters of the Bible in Genesis. The Old Testament asserts for us this fundamental truth. There is a creator. He is distinct from his creation. We are his creatures. We are not like him. His essence consists in glorying and joying that he is creator and what our life should consist of in glorifying and enjoying him forever. And so it is perfectly appropriate that this book of the Bible would be here to help us see what happens when we attempt to live life against that truth, when we try to go against the grain and tap meaning out of life apart from God. Friends, if you attempt to live life under the sun, Apart from God, the preacher keeps telling you 
vanity of vanities, striving after the wind. It will never satisfy. It will never be enough. That's the basic story of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an exploration in the different ways that people try to find meaning apart from God. And it's telling us how futile it is. But perhaps you don't believe that today. Here's just a simple question for you. You believe, if I get to live life on my terms, it'll all work out for me. How's that working out for you right now? You've done many of the things you want to do. Are you happy? The reality is that apart from faith in Christ, you will never be. It's a big argument where he's trying to corner us so that we might see that all is vanity. Everything under the sun apart from God is vanity. Everything in this world, in every sphere, that, uh, does not satisfy. But if we draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is meaning and forgiveness. And that's what the Lord's table does. It reminds us that there is meaning in this life in Christ and that there is forgiveness in Christ. Friends, our Savior Jesus Christ on the night before he suffered instituted the sacrament of his body and blood as a pledge of his love for us. It is a continual remembrance for us of his death and that we share in his risen life. For in this mystery, we are made one with Christ and we are made one in him, made holy. Having this mind among ourselves and of his great love for us, in obedience to his command, his church renders to him never-ending praise for his providence and his preservation, for his forgiveness and his mercy towards us, for what he has done for us in Christ. He has humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we might have life. But if we're to share rightly in this mystery today, if we're going to be nourished by the Lord's Supper, then we must remember the dignity of the Lord's table. I just want to call us to think for a moment, to consider what Paul says to believers as they approach the, the table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. There is a right way to approach the Lord at the Lord's table, and there is a wrong way. Let a person examine himself. Then... And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Friends, don't pass over this too quickly. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would never be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. For as the benefit of approaching the Lord is great, so Paul tells us is the judgment if we approach him improperly. Brothers and sisters, judge yourself right now. Is there sin that you need to repent of? I'm going to pause for a moment. We're going to pray. I'm going to just have a moment of silence. And if there's something that you feel like you need to repent of, do that right now, and then I'm going to pray for us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we do pray that we would not eat and drink judgment on ourselves this morning. 
and that we would not be so prideful as to refuse to repent of our sins. Lord, may we be a people who would be quick to repent. Help us now to think of the sins that are in our lives. Lord, we confess them. Sins of pride, of arrogance, of gluttony, sins of lust and anger, of gossip. Father, sins of division, sowing discord and disunity, not being quick to labor for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, withholding the gospel from people that we should share it with because we were fearful and weren't courageous. And many other things we're not even, I can't even think to remember right now. Father, we repent. Amen. Friends, examining your life and your conduct in light of God's commands this morning and acknowledge your sins before Him. And if you're making amendment before God, do not be quick to turn away from the fact that it's not only that you need to be made right with God, you need to be made right with one another. Hear what Jesus says to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Friends, we can only come together at the Lord's table and share in this banquet together as a family when we are living like a family. When we are forgiving one another and loving one another, and being in harmony with one another. That doesn't mean complete unanimity in everything, but that does mean living with one another in an understanding way. Is there bitterness that you have against someone else? Unforgiveness that you have towards someone else? Someone that you've sinned against that you need to repent of? Let's pause right now and let's pray. And perhaps you might need to go find that person even now. Pray with me. Another moment of silence. Father, as our brother exhorted us earlier, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray right now, Father, that you would help us to be a people who repent, confess sin. And Lord, we thank you for the words of the same apostle just a few verses later. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We appeal to you through our Lord Jesus Christ and ask that you would sustain us by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Repentance removes doubt and it gives assurance of pardon and it strengthens us in our faith. In our faith. Now, as we approach the table, we think of Christ who loved us. He loved us more than we could even love ourselves. He gave his life for us.